Let us pray. Amos eternal and everlasting Father, we are thankful this morning for your love and your mercy, for your kindness that you have shown to each and every one of us throughout this week. We are grateful that you continue to be faithful, that you show yourself a God that should be worshipped by us. We realize that we do not adequately worship you the way we ought to, but we pray that you continue to enable us to be those who are actually your worshippers in a way that will bring glory and honor to you. We know that we are limited because of what we face on this planet, but we also know that you have given us your Holy Spirit to enable us to serve you. So as we have gathered this morning in obedience to the instruction that we should do so, especially as we see the evil days draw near, we know we are in tumultuous times, but we also understand that underneath are the everlasting arm that sustains us. So, Heavenly Father, as we have gathered this morning, we pray now that God, the Holy Spirit, the perfect communicator, will enable us to hear precisely what you have for us. This is a request in Christ's name. Amen. We're still in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 through 22. He reads, beginning at verse 14, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry, I speak to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. It's not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ. And it's not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ. Because there is one loaf, we, we are many, are one body, for we all partake of the one love. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar. Do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But the the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Now the message of this passage of First Corinthians chapter 10 verses 45. 14 through 22, we started to consider in our last study is that believers should avoid idolatry since everything associated with it is incompatible with the Christian faith. Exposes one to demons and so hands one's fellowship with the Lord. Now this message captures really the prohibition against idolatry and various explanations or reasons the Corinthians and so all believers should not be involved in idolatry. Now we have examined the prohibition against idolatry in the command flee from idolatry. Now, so what is left is the consideration of the explanation of reasons against idolatry. It is with this consideration of the reasons against idolatry introduced in verse 15 that we begin our study this morning. So, verse 15 introduces the reason or explanation against idolatry Although that is not that obvious. Now we say that it is not obvious that verse 15 introduced reasons the Holy Spirit provided through Apostle Paul against idolatry because there is no connective at the beginning of the verse in the Greek text that 
usually signals that what follow concern reason or explanation. See, often in the Greek text, to indicate that a sentence is to be interpreted as providing reason or explanation for something in the passage. The Greek uses a Greek conjunction that is commonly translated for in the English versions. You take for example, the apostle used the Greek conjunction to provide a reason. The Corinthians and so all believers are in superior spiritual status, which is that their sins have been forgiven them through the death of Christ on the cross, although he did so using a metaphor of Christ being believers Passover, uh, Passover lamb, with the instruction given or explanation given in First Corinthians chapter five, verse seven. First Corinthians Chapter 5 verse 7. It is, get rid of the old, uh, the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For, that tells us, that's a Greek conjunction, ga, so that tells us some explanation or reason. Say, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So when we expect some kind of explanation or reason, we expect to see the Greek conjunction gap. Now, there's another Greek conjunction. The apostle used at the beginning of a verse, or in the middle of a sentence, uh, to supply one of his reasons for thanking God for the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5. So we say these uh, conjunctions or particles that we find in the Greek, they are very helpful. Uh, even in English, if you read uh, carefully, you realize they are important. So uh, here we do see the, uh, another Greek word used to, in, uh, to provide uh, reason given here in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 5 because it reads, For... That's another Greek word, hote. Now here, for in him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge. So once a person says that, when you see that word for you, know it's either providing a reason or explanation. However, the apostle did not begin verse 15 with any of these conjunctions. Or any other for that matter, that will signal to us that what he's about to do or uh, introduce are reasons for prohibition against idolatry. So, why then do we contain that verse 15 introduce the reasons the Holy Spirit uh, through Apostle Paul prohibits idolatry? The answer lies really though with how the apostle addressed the Corinthians and the task he assigned them in verse 15. The way he addressed them and the task he assigned them enabled us to know he's talking about reasons or explanations. Now the apostle implied that he was about to supply reasons for prohibition against idolatry in that his address to the Corinthians implies that he recognized them as those who are marked with good judgment. As in the first sentence of where we are studying 1 Corinthians 10 verse 15. Look at that first sentence. I speak to sensible people. That sentence tells us he's dealing with reason. That sentence. See, some interpreters, of course, take this sentence as ironical. 
But that does not seem to be what the apostle intended. Since such irony will not make much sense with the function that we'll get to later that the apostle assigned in the verse to those he addressed. Therefore, it is better to take this st- uh, the sentence to mean that the apostle assumed correctly, or assumed true that the, uh, what he stated about the Corinthians that he addressed to be true. Now, this does not mean that the apostle contradicts himself when he had previously stated that some of the Corinthians claimed to be wise. Where he was somehow a little bit ironical. Now, he simply admits, though, that some of them were indeed wise in the sense of being able to comprehend the reason he was about to give them regarding prohibition against idolatry. In other words, he, he assumes correctly that they can capture reasoning. Now, this is something that I keep reminding us is becoming a lost thing in the society in which we live today. People can no longer hold serious arguments, reason out their positions. They are rather in, interested in, you know, it's my will or not any other thing. Or they don't even listen to arguments. That, these things are important. That's what the scripture does for us, is to give us that level of argument. Now, if you are not able to do that, you are really very limited in how you function as a Christian. Because if you are not able to reason things through, then how are you going to apply what you learn? That's why it's important to develop that ability to reason. I do not believe there's any believer who cannot develop that. Because it's something supplied by the Holy Spirit. But today, you know, our churches, they're satisfied. Just give it to me, one, two, three points, and whatever it is, and let, you know, let's go. No more sitting down. Let's just argue these things out. Because that's how you learn things. By arguing and reasoning through things. Anyway, now the expression, sensible people, in the first sentence of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 15, when it says, I speak to sensible people. That expression, sensible people, is translated from a Greek word that pertains to understanding uh, uh, that results from insight and wisdom. When you, if you understand something uh, from insight and wisdom, that's what a Greek word is used. Thus, then the Greek word may simply has the sense of wise, as Apostle Paul used it in his sarcastic comparison of the apostles to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 10. First Corinthians. Chapter 4, verse 10. It is, We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. And we say so wise, that is being sarcastic. But that's a Greek word here, it's translated wise. Now the Greek word is used in a negative sense of conceited, conceited, to describe uh, Gentiles in Apostle Paul's argument regarding Israel's status in God's election. He was in dealing with the doctrine of election that he began in Romans chapter 9 and ended in Romans chapter 11. He put a series of arguments. And this part of that argument or what he's telling them about uh, concerning the Gentiles regarding the position of Israel in Romans chapter 11 verse 25. Romans chapter 11 verse 25. 
Romans chapter 11, verse 25. It says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. That's a Greek word, but here it's translated conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening import until the full number of the Gentile has come in. In other words, there are a certain number of people from Gentiles that will be saved. And when that number is reached, then the next phase of what God does with Israel kicks in. So we do know, only that we don't know what the number is. Now that we know when that will kick in, either, but we do know it will happen. Now anyway, the clause, so that you may not be conceited, is literally from the Greek, so that you will not be wise in yourselves. Wise in yourselves. That's what is translated conceited here. Now, anyway, in our passage of 1 Corinthians, uh, chapter 10, verse 15, it has, the Greek word has the sense of judicious person. Judicious person. That is, a person marked by the exercise of good judgment. Or, as they use the word common sense, Especially in practical matters. In other words, there are things that you, you know, you watch people today, you just wonder, do they really have judgment? Some of the things people do, you just wonder, do they really have judgment? But this is our Greek word, that's what he's dealing with here though. Now, by describing the Corinthians as people or persons marked with sound or good judgment, the apostle implies that what he was about to write to them calls for the use of sound judgment. Now, in exercising sound judgment, one must have reasons for one's thought or action. Again, this is why, because of lack of understanding of categories of truth, we come to a point where many of us have a limited vocabulary to argue about things in any way you can look at it. But uh, really, if you're going to have sound judgment, you've got to have the ability to reason. Because you say you have several options, you say, now this is better than this, why, why, and you know, give your reasons. But if you are not able to do that, then you cannot have a good sound or sound judgment. So in other words, all I'm saying is that no one that is unable to reason out something can be considered wise. I mean that those who are wise usually consider reason for or against an action before taking it. Those who are foolish, they see something, they just go into it. They don't think through what I'm about to do or the action I'm about to take, what are the consequences? What are the blessings? That requires ability to reason. And to reason, you have to have facts. Doesn't the apostle, by addressing the Corinthians as those with good judgment, he implied that what he was about to provide them are reasons that will lead to wise decision or choice. So the point we are making then is that the apostle, in addressing the Corinthians as those who have good judgment, he implies that he was about to provide facts that are necessary to exercise sound judgment regarding the matter of idolatry. In other words, he's going to give them some facts now that they should exercise as you know, good judgment that they have. That means they'll be reasoning. So that's why we know he's, by just telling them that they, are, they have good judgment, he's saying, I'm going to supply you reasons now. Now you make, them, you, you, you make a call. Here are facts. And let's see how you decide. That's part of what he's doing here. Anyway, 
Another reason we are sad that 1 Corinthians 10 verse 15 introduced the reasons against idolatry as given by the Holy Spirit through Apostle Paul is actually the assignment he gave to the Corinthians regarding the application of his description of them as those with sound judgment or those who are wise. Now this assignment is for them to put into practice their ability to reason since he demands them to evaluate everything as implied in the second sentence of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 15 where it says, judge for yourselves what I say. Judge for yourself what I say. That requires reasoning. That's why we know that he's dealing with reasoning. Anyway, the word judge here is translated from a Greek uh, word that may mean to judge or right or to pass judgment upon or to express an opinion about. As it is used in the last instruction concerning looking down on others in a condemning manner in Luke 6 verse 37. Luke 6 verse 37. Now, you know, this is one of those passages where if you try to correct me, say, well, you're judging me. Does the Bible say don't judge? Yes, the Bible says don't judge, but you have to understand what that means. Okay, say, do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Here, the judging here is not just telling you you are wrong. It is that whole attitude of thinking whoever you look down on somebody. That's what he's talking about. It's not that, you know, because the context says it couldn't be meaning uh, you couldn't make a decision as what is right or wrong. Or where a person did something right or wrong. No. Because he, how can he talk about knowing about false prophets and so on? You have to reason things. You have to make decisions. So, here it is. Anytime you uh, even if you are correcting somebody and you do it in a condescending manner, you are judging the person. See, it's that attitude. It's not that somebody is telling you what you're doing is wrong. It's how, what's the attitude? If you look down on somebody, then you are, that's when you become guilty of this judge that we have here. And then the, word may, the Greek word may mean to judge as guilty or really to condemn. As the word is used to describe the states of those who believe in the Lord Jesus and those who do not. In John chapter 3 verse 18. John chapter 3 verse 18. John chapter 3 verse 18 reads, Whoever believes in him is not condemned. That's a Greek word. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Now the Holy Spirit can do a lot of things with any part of the scripture. But anytime I, re- I read this scripture, I remember somebody of almost 50 years ago that uh, through my ministry got saved. And what he told me, he said, when you, say, when you said what you said and quoted John 3, 18, he said, that, that gave me, you know, a lot of unrest. And I kept struggling with it. And then finally, I believed in Christ. I said, great. Then I, so anytime I read this passage, I remember that. You just don't never know. It's, you know, the way I see it, I don't care. This is, I, have, I hope you have that attitude. I don't really care what people think about what I say to them about the word of God. I don't really care. Because it's not my word. 
So I hope you believe this thing. You have a weapon. Somebody does it. Fight. Say, I have the word of God. You don't believe that. Fight at you. And leave it. And let the God, God the Holy Spirit deal with you. That should be our attitude. Don't even, I mean, sometimes I know we can argue, but sometimes it's really not necessary. Just fire that word to that person and let the Holy Spirit do what he needs to do. Anyway, the Greek word may also mean to punish. As in Stephen's sermon, as he referred to God's promise to Abraham of punishing those who enslave his descendants, according to Acts chapter 7, verse 7. Acts chapter 7, verse 7. And hold on to Acts, of course. The next passage is also in Acts. It is, but I will punish. That's that Greek word, Krino. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said. And afterward, they will come out, out of that country and worship me in this place. That the Greek word may mean to make a judgment based on taking various factors into account. So the Greek word they may mean to consider, to consider. As Lydia used the word to persuade Apostle Paul and, and his team to stay in her house. If the apostle considered her to be a believer in Christ, as we read in Acts Chapter 16, verse 15. Acts chapter 16, verse 15. It reads, When she and members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider, that's a Greek word here, it's translated consider. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay in my, at my house. And she persuaded us. Now the Greek word also may mean to prefer, to prefer. As it is used to describe the preference of believers regarding their of worship, although it is translated considers in the NIV of Romans Chapter 14, verse 5. Romans. Chapter 14, verse 5. It is, one man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. See the sentence, one man considers one day, may be translated, as you find in some English versions, as one man prefers one day. So, here our Greek word, Krino has the meaning of uh, prefers. Now the word also may mean to re- resolve as it is used to describe the only thing the apostle was concerned regarding the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 2. First Corinthians chapter 2 verse 2. First Corinthians 2 verse 2. It is, For I resolved, that's a Greek word, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The word may also mean to convince, to convince, as in Apostle Paul's certainty, about the death of Christ for all human beings, as stated in Second Corinthians chapter five, verse fourteen. Second 
Second Corinthians chapter 5 verse 14. It is, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. In other words, if you are compelled, if you really understand the love of Christ for you, that will compel you to live for him and be a witness for him. That's part of what it is. And that's one of those times you, you've heard me in the past say, if a woman is so convinced that the husband loves her, she will do anything for, her, for him. There is, there's a power, if you can put it this way, there's a power involved in conviction about somebody's love for you. So if we have that conviction of his love for us, what he did for us on the cross, if we have that conviction, it, will, it is compelling. That's what Paul is, is emphasizing here. Anyway, in our passage of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 15, the sense of the Greek word though is to evaluate. To evaluate. Although, it's, you know, the NIV, you know, the, most of the English version, they say judge. But I'm, uh, with everything we've gone through, the best sense of the word here is to evaluate. That is, to form a critical opinion. Now, again, I go back to the same thing. I've been, uh, I've been hopping out for some time now. That many of us do not want to think critically. You cannot think critically unless you have facts and able and willing to uh, exercise your mind. Now, the mind has to be trained. I mean, that's one of the things I keep uh, emphasizing that people say, well, you know, just go there. Don't bother about all these exegesis. Just give them the points and go home. Yeah. But see, you're not training your mind to reason. Once you're able to whole focus and it has several advantages disability and, uh, and I remember a story a true one uh, that was uh, uh, given many years ago of a young man who could hardly hold his attention so he went into the military and uh, come, came back he got saved and Devoted himself to studying the Bible through a past, of course. And he began to develop his ability. So eventually he went back. He now said, I can concentrate. He went back to an engineering school and graduated with such a great honors. And I said, Yeah, there is much more to the benefit of being a Christian who develops the mind by serious teaching that requires you to think. So, here we're saying that our word means to evaluate in the sense of to form critical opinion of something, either positive or negative. But you form that critical opinion by examination or by scrutiny of something. Many of us, we take things for the, uh, there are certain things you should never take at face value. Think about it. You know, come through some uh, reasoning. Somebody says, yeah, the other person did this and did that. Critical reasoning is, how did you know that? Were you there? Oh, somebody told me. You see, immediately you know, he has no basis. There's a simple thing about being critical in your thinking. Anyway, it is impossible, though, to evaluate anything critically without facts on which to base the evaluation. Hence, the implication here though, is that the apostle is about to supply facts or reasons that will help the Corinthians to carry out the evaluation he expected of them. In other words, that you make a call, you make a judgment call. And that judgment call, you must have facts. So he said, now you're ready, and I'm going to supply you facts. So in that way, he said, I'm going to be giving you reasons. But he has reasons I, you can know that I'm about to give you reasons. They will address you, what I ask you to do with that. So the apostle wanted the Corinthians immediately 
to begin to urgently evaluate the facts or the reasons for the prohibition against idolatry that he was about to supply to them. Now there are certain things you can explain to people. You argue soundly they won't pay attention. But there are other times when you do so, some people will pay attention. But my thing as we are looking at this thing is our approach from this pulpit is to provide you the facts from the scripture. Now you go home, you do what you want to do. That's between you and the Lord. Now, I mean, I, I, I desire for you to apply correctly what you learn, but still it's between you and the Lord. So, the facts, the Corinthians are to evaluate, are then introduced in the sentence of where we're studying in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 15. That sentence, what I say, what I say. Now the word say here, implies that the apostle, or what the apostle writes next, are intended to provide reason or even clarification. Now this is because the word say is translated from a Greek word that uh, may mean to state something orally or in writing, really. Hence, it may mean something to, to, like to declare, to declare. As in Peter's declaration that he was not going to deny Jesus Christ. As stated in Mark chapter 14 verse 29. Mark Mark chapter 14 verse 29 It is Peter declared that's a Greek word yes, declared. Peter declared even if all fall away I will not Now the Greek word may mean to say something that provides a fuller explanation of a sentence or of a statement. To say something that provides a fuller explanation of something. So they may mean, uh, it may mean something like to imply or to mean. Now it's for this reason that the translators of the NIV render the Greek word with what I mean in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 29. Now remember I said the Greek word can also mean to say something that provides a fuller explanation of a statement. Which means it can have, it can have the meaning to imply or to mean. Now here we see the translators of the NIV Render it what I mean. It is what I mean. That's you know that's the same Greek word. But here it's, it's what I mean. Brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Now in our passage of First Corinthians ten verse fifteen, the word is used with the meaning to say, but with the sense that what is being said is intended to shed light or provide explanation for the prohibition against idolatry. Consequently, the assignment of applying sound judgment to what the apostle has written that follow verse 15 should be understood as then as providing the reasons or explanation or guiding, uh, the explanation for guiding against idolatry. Hence, we contend then that verse 15 introduce the reasons to follow. In other words, see here we're going to do the same thing that the apostle uh, did with the uh, first recipients, the Corinthians. He supplied them facts, which are reasons that they should now Go to work by their mind, apply their mind, and see how reasonable what the apostle is telling them about idolatry is, or why they should be uh, 
uh, away from it. In any case, there are three general reasons the Holy Spirit provided through Apostle Paul about prohibition against idolatry. Three reasons. A first general reason for prohibition against idolatry is because of the uniqueness of the Lord's Supper. The uniqueness of the Lord's Supper, as described in verses 16 and 17 of 1 Corinthians 10 that we're studying. In other words, the apostle intended for the Corinthians to recognize that idolatry is unbecoming of believers because of the uniqueness of the Lord's Supper that they celebrate. Now this general reason may not be that clear as a reason against idolatry, but that will become clearer as we examine what the apostle wrote regarding the Lord's Supper. Now be that then as it may, the uniqueness of the Lord's Supper is first to describe in terms of the significance of the two elements used in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. The first element of the Lord's uh, Supper the Apostle mentioned is drinking from the cup. That is usually the second element of the celebration. Now, Apostle Paul probably reversed the order here because of the flow of the reasons he provided since he maintained the normal order of first bread and cup in the celebration letter in the 11th chapter. He followed the usual order of bread and the wine of Jews. But here we say he's, he reverses in order to help people follow the flow of his argument. Now by flow, of course, we mean the reasons or the argument provided. You see, we mean that it's really easier for the apostle to go from the mention of bread in the last part of verse 16 to speaking of oneness of the body of Christ in verse 17. In other words, we're saying the reason he probably did that is if he talked about bread first and then talk about the cup and then he goes into talking about one body it kind of leaves you not following what he's saying. So he said, okay, let's, the Holy Spirit arrested him, of course, let's talk about cup and then we go to the bread. And because the bread will not help me get into the next thing I'm going to say about the oneness in the body of Christ. Now that aside, the apostle indicates then that the significance of celebrating the cup is sharing in the death of Jesus Christ. Sharing in the death of Jesus Christ. It is the significance that is given in the first rhetorical question of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 16. The first rhetorical question is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ. Now it is our assertion that the first rhetorical question of verse 16 is the apostle's way of conveying that the significance of celebrating the cup is sharing in the death of Jesus Christ. Now this notwithstanding, there are two concerns of this rhetorical question. The first is what is meant in the phrase, the cup of thanksgiving. Or, literally, the Greeks say, cup of blessing. Cup of blessing. Now the second is really how to understand them. The phrase, when it's a participation in the blood of Christ. Those are the two things that we need to deal with. Now to, to, do, uh, to deal with these uh, concerns, as well as really to understand that this uh, first rhetorical question of verse 16 is Apostle's way 
of conveying that the significance of the cup is a celeb- uh, in, the, in the celebration of the cup is a, a participation in the death of Christ. To do that, we should consider the words that he used in the question. The word cup is translated from a Greek word that literally refers to a vessel for holding liquid and so drink from, hence simply means a cup. As in the giving of one, uh, someone drink of water in the, the law reference in Matthew chapter 10 verse 42. Matthew 10 verse 42. Matthew chapter 10 verse 42 reads, And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. In other words, whatever you do for a fellow believer, you'll be rewarded. That's what it's really saying here. Now, of course, more focus on those who are uh, involved in the ministry of the world. The literal cup can by a metonym. By metonym, we mean that figure of speech in which one thing is designated by the mention of something associated with it. For example, White House in this country stands for the president. That becomes a metonym. So we are saying that the literal cop can by metonym stand for what it contains. As for example, where cop represents wine in Luke chapter 22 verse 20. So, the cup here will represent, it's a metonym for what is inside it. Luke chapter 22 verse 20 reads, In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. He's not talking about the cup, he's talking about the content. That's what is poured out. The content. That's what you drink. That's what it represents something that's poured out. Now, figuratively, the word cup is used for the suffering and eventual violent death of Jesus Christ in John chapter 18, verse 11. John 18, verse 11. John chapter 18 verse 11 says, Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Should I not go through the cross? In our passage of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 16 though, uh, the Greek word is used in a literal sense of a small uh, container or vessel used for drinking, that's called, that's really associated with thanksgiving. That, the word thanksgiving though, when you say cup of thanksgiving, is translated from a Greek word that may mean praise. That is, of course, an act of uh, speaking in favorable terms for someone or of an object as it is used for the activity of the angels or living creatures and elders in the heavenly court regarding Jesus Christ, even as we're speaking in Revelation chapter 5, verse 12. Revelation chapter 5, verse 12. Revelation chapter 5 verse 12 reads, In a loud voice they sang 
worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. That's a Greek word, eulogia. Now the word may mean blessing, either as an activity of human or that of God. It is as an activity that the word is used in human activity when it, when it is used to describe Esau seeking to get the, the father's blessing without success. As in Hebrews chapter 11, I mean chapter 12 verse 17. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 17. Hebrews 12 verse 17 reads, Afterward, as you know, when he, that's Esau, wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. Now, blessing as benefit bestowed by God the Father is meant then in the spiritual blessings believers receive from Him, as stated in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. I mean, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 reads, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now in our passage of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 16, the word means blessing in the sense of speech act of praying for divine favor or protection, especially with the idea that even the audience receives a benefit from the utterance. Now, our Greek now is really related to the Greek verb. That's why he said, we give thanks. We give thanks. The cup of blessing, we give thanks. Or the cup of thanksgiving that we give thanks. Now that expression, give thanks, is translated from a Greek word related to the first one. That may mean to speak well of, to praise, to extol. That is to say something commendatory about a person as it is used to describe Zechariah, uh, his speech about God once he was able to speak after the birth of his son John, according to Luke Chapter 1, verse 64. Luke. Chapter 1, verse 64 reads, Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loose, and he began to speak Praising God. That's a Greek word here. Now the word may mean to bless. In the sense of to ask for bestowal of special favor. Especially of calling down God's gracious power. As the word is used to specify the right action of believers towards their persecutors. In Romans chapter 12 verse 14. Romans 12 verse 14. Romans chapter 12 verse 14 reads, Bless, that's our Greek word, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. The word may mean to bestow favor then or to provide with the benefits. As it is used to describe the spiritual Benefits 
God had bestowed on believers, although the word bless is used for the uh, for the word in the passage we cited previously. I'm not going to go back to that, but it's Ephesians 1 verse 3. Now in our passage of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 16, the Greek word then is used in the sense of to bless. That is, to invoke or ask for bestowal of divine favor. To ask for the bestowal of divine favor, implying a positive disposition or kind actions towards the recipient. So the Greek word then we have considered enable us to deal with the first concern of how to interpret the phrase cup of thanksgiving or literally the cup of blessing. Now using the meanings that we uh, have uh, established, the cup of thanksgiving is better translated the cup of blessing because we are asking for some favor. Now the phrase, the cup of blessing, probably derived from the Jewish Passover, uh, the Jewish Passover meal, where it refers to the cup of wine drunk at the conclusion of the meal and over which a prayer of blessing is spoken. And they, once they take that cup, they drink, and they say some blessings. Now, the apostle, being a Jew, of course, uses familiar Jewish expression for the cup used in the celebration of the Lord's Supper by Christians. Hence, the phrase, cup of thanksgiving, or literally cup of blessing, is to be understood as a cup along with its content that is used for the celebration of the Lord's Supper by believers in Christ, over which often we, or we should always offer prayer of thanksgiving to God, or we should say the cup over a minister or one who administers it, uh, whatever the ceremony is, whoever administers it, that person will pray over the cup with actually praying over what's inside it. Now this of course leads us to understand then that uh, the cup of thanksgiving refers to the cup that contains something we drink during that celebration for which we now not only ask, uh, give thanks to God for doing but they ask for his blessing or his divine favor upon us. So with that, that explains the first part of the issue. So that leaves us with the second part, which is what is a participation in the blood of Christ. Thus far, we, the sentence of 1 Corinthians 10 Verse 16, when he said, the, the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks, describes in the second part of the celebration, like the first part though, the Lord offered thanks to the Father before instructing the disciples to drink from the cup that he used to establish the second part of the celebration as we read in Matthew Chapter 26, verse 27. Matthew. Matthew. 26, verse 27 reads, Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offer it to them, saying, Drain from it, all of you. So, of course, the cup as used here refers to the wine in the cup or the juice that the Lord offered to his disciples to drink. So, before drinking of the wine or juice that is used to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we offer thanks or blessing to God in keeping with the pattern the Lord established. The cup or the wine in it conveys the establishment of a new covenant that was ratified 
by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross as indicated in Matthew chapter 26 verse 28. We're looking at time, it's time for break and after break we'll read it. <laughs> 